Guys, this is Christmas, and it's uh, welcome to the Top Lines and Tales weekly livestock podcast coming to you from Christmas time. And I've got some of my mates in here this year, and we're going to have a bit of a lively podcast chatting about various things. And uh, it's all about livestock, loosely anyway. And uh, going to start with uh, I've got my bar humbug friend uh, Derek Redpath. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. How are you? And I got straight off the Christmas tree, it's Golden Bulls, Andrew Goldie himself there. Bring it on, Andrew. Good to be here, long-time listener, first-time caller. Okay, and, and as they as they say in Spain, a sheep guy is a fleece navidad. Uh, here we go, we've got another sheep boy on there, Scott Brown, a regular, and uh, Scotty, bring us, bring us some crack. Hey boys, how are you getting on? So I'm uh, not quite sure where we're going to start this one, and anybody got a Christmas joke for us? Well, I, had, I, had, I just opened my first Christmas cracker today, and I'm, oh, what does does Santa suffer from when he gets stuck in the chimney? Mm, go on. Claustrophobia. Claustrophobia. Oh. That, that, that's, that, that might be funny in about two hours' time, but at the moment it's that's kind right, of fell on a bit, bit of a snowy right ground down dad, there. And... That's a right shit dad joke that Derek will get a lot more than me, man. <laughs> <laughs> what do we call a cross between a cow and an earthquake? I don't know. A milkshake. Come on, guys, get with the program here. Milkshake. I'm right. <laughs> and why do cows have hooves instead of feet? One for you, Andrew. They've got what? Cow? Got why do cows have hooves instead of feet? Oh, I don't know. You tell me, Andrew. Because they lack toes. Oh, very good. See, that's one. Well, that yeah. didn't get, make it to the Christmas cracker list this year. It, it probably... It's, <laughs> it's, it's, I can understand why. It's in the background <laughs> for next year's Christmas cracker jokes. So. <laughs> After that, I've kind of run out of jokes here, really. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> right, well... Our listeners out there, thousands of you, thank you very much. It's another year gone by. We're moving into our third year now on Top Lines and Tales, and uh, thank you all for tuning in for our 109th episode, I think we're at there. And, and firstly, we'd like to say at our Christmas episode, we'd like to do a little bit of uh, uh, rest in peace, a few people that we've lost this year. We are, a, we are a, a livestock podcast, and there's a few people in the livestock industry that we have lost this year that we maybe should give a mention so um well the one at the top of my list and probably one of the greatest cattle breeders <coughs> of our generation and the generation before us really which spans quite a time between us and, and uh and the generation before that's probably written almost three generations on here if we take in uh, the band of andrew in, in the in the bottom corner of my video screen there um but if we if we take the three generations one of the greatest cattle breeders and and, and a man who's done a fantastic amount for the industry and particularly the aberdeen angus industry would be uh william mclaren and uh william mclaren of netherton to those guys that don't know who would uh won the sir william young award and we did a podcast on willie uh, a, a few months ago so you guys will be aware of him but uh, william mclaren senior should i say a man who took the Stuck by the Angus breed when everybody else was running away in different directions, and uh, between him and two or three other guys, made the breed really happen. And uh, and I think everybody that breeds Angus cattle in in the UK and possibly around the world will uh, will owe a huge debt of gratitude to to the man Willie McLaren. Uh, Scotty, did you know him? I met Willie a couple of times. Yeah, I'm privileged to meet him. Um, very distinguished man, very knowledgeable in the Angus uh, well household name really, I suppose, in the Angus breed, the Netherton. 
heard name uh, known well at far and wide. Um, yeah, a bit of a legend uh, has passed on. I suppose young Willie, the work will be getting carried on by him now. But uh, what, what an amazing, what an amazing, uh, you know, memory to be to leave behind you in terms of his his achievements uh, within the Angus Speed. And, and you're right, you know, to his credit, he stuck by the Angus Speed when the when the old traffic was running towards the Continentals in the, in the 70s when they came in. Uh, Willie was relentless in his pursuit of maintaining the Angus Speed with um, within the the UK beef herds and keeping the Anguses at the top. And um, you know, but one of those guys has been at the top, you know, been at the top or thereabout. Uh, had so much influence within within his within the Angus breed, uh, more than more than many folk, I suppose you could think of over that length of time. Annually, you just said three generations. I think Surely. that'd probably be about right. Surely, and, and, and a man who stuck with commercial values, and, and Willie had sat and told me that many times. Commercial values in, in an Angus breed when other people were chasing fads, and, and I think that's a, that's where the credit came to him. And he realised when the breed was going the wrong way, it lost its commercial value, and he made sure that he tried to fetch a commercial value back. And that's a lesson we can all learn, there, uh, Derek, isn't it? It certainly is. I only met the great man once that I can recall, and that was um, a young farmer's stock judging practice for the Highland Show, and we were there. And uh, I was just a young whippersnapper at the time, but um, you were just in awe uh, the man's knowledge, and um, the cattle were just <coughs> superb. And, you know, that could be, showing me, 30, 32 years ago, maybe, and you still remember it to this day, so that's the kind of fella he was, really. He, it stuck in your mind. Um, yeah, the cattle were were just fantastic. Certainly, and a man who encouraged youngsters every day of his life and just made sure that everybody else got a listen and got a turn. And you know, I certainly had that when going to the shows with him as well. As, as a youngster, he would uh, he would encourage everybody. Andrew, you probably wouldn't remember maybe before your day, but uh, did, did you come across McLaren on your, on your travels? Uh, I, I certainly didn't come across him on a personal uh, level, but I've uh, certainly saw within the Angus breed, uh, there's a lot of Netherton mentioned within uh, the whole herd book. So he's put a, had a massive impact on what the Aberdeen Angus are today. Um, I, I, yeah, I just think uh, if you look through any herd, there'll be, there'll be very few herds that don't have Netherton breeding throughout it. We'll miss Miss Old Willie, and, and uh, as I said, we've done a podcast on, on him. Another man we've done a podcast on this year, and we might come on to this a little bit later from the auctioneers, but uh, it was uh, Roly Fraser. I'd probably say the great Roly Fraser as well, from a fantastic firm of McDonald Fraser, of course, in, in there in Perth, auctioneers. And Andrew, you're an auctioneer, but you won't have learned from Roly, but you'll learn from people who learned from people who learned from Roly. He's a man that went back a long way, and uh, it's sadly missed too. Yeah, I've heard many street, uh, many people speaking about Roly, and uh, there's a huge influence out with uh, throughout the whole auctioneering industry. I mean, uh, myself just been a retired auctioneer at 32. Um, I still I still know what was going on in the background with it all. And uh, if you spoke to anyone, uh, they always went back to some of the greats back in the day. And uh, Roly Fraser was certainly one that got mentioned a lot for his character in the box and uh, the way he sold. And uh, if you look out, if you look through the, the industry as a whole at the moment, it would be. There's a lot of uh, auctioneers coming forward that can certainly learn a lot from the the characters like uh, like Zeroli and, uh, and that and, uh, that are coming through from that era. As I said, we'll go on to the auctioneers a little bit uh, later on in this recording. But it's um, uh, you, both of you boys there in the border, Scotty and, and Derek. You'll have had dealings with everybody's had dealings with Roly, surely. I can't actually remember. I've never met Roly, but um, I mean, his his name is synonymous with, you know, a, a long time respected auctioneer uh, who was well known and, as I say, respected within the industry. Um, so yeah, I'm sure he'll be. A, he's a great loss. 
Yeah, I was the same. <clears throat> it wasn't a man that I ever came across, but I knew, I knew him by reputation. Um, yeah, a big name and a big character. Yeah, indeed, indeed, it's a, a big loss, and and a man got to a good age. And I was fortunate enough. I sat and had a, a couple of hours of recording with him, close on ten years ago now. And a man taught me more about the Aberdeen Angus cattle than anybody else has ever taught me, including well, the two men I've mentioned, Willie McLaren and Rolly Fraser. I think probably knew more about the Angus breed than. Uh, than all that everybody else uh, put together, really. So, uh, yeah, a sad loss. I'm, I'm going to mention that uh, one friend of mine, uh, Gary Owen. You guys won't know. You might think of him as, as the man that put up and under in the, in the rugby, but uh, Gary was a, a, a pal of mine, bred uh, um, Oxford sheep, but he bred Murray Grey cattle and started bringing cattle to Smithfield in the 1970s and, and uh, it brought animals down there, never even seen a shear, barely seen a halter, barely seen anything, and uh, cemented himself. He decided if he was going to go showing cattle, he thought the best place to go was the Royal Smithfield show, so he turned up with these things covered in shite. Uh, <laughs> complete, <laughs> com- complete mess, and then he came to me, can I give him a hand to sort him out, which was a bit of a challenge, and Gary and I became pals, and I lost Gary early on this year. You guys, anybody else you want to mention on that one? There was a a very old friend of mine, um, I say old, she was, I don't know what age she would be when she passed away there, but not long ago was Betty Wilson from Ayrshire. Uh, she was married to Andy Wilson, the Cairnview herd, uh, Simmental herd in Ayrshire. Um, she was very well respected and known throughout the whole uh, Simmental society and uh, uh, she'll be a huge miss to, to everyone there. So. Yep. I, I definitely couldn't leave her out today, but uh, no, as I say, it's quite hard to try and remember back mm-hmm. uh, throughout these last few years now, but yeah, she's definitely one that uh, I'd like to mention then. Yeah, Robert McInnes from uh, Grass Yards in Ayrshire, and um, Robert was a great family friend of Anne, my wife's, um, and they, they knew the family much better than I did, but um, I only knew Robert maybe for the last 15 years, but uh, by all accounts, the the Holstein herd that he dispersed a number of years ago were um, absolutely outstanding. Um, of their day, they would be one of the best herds in Scotland. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, Robert passed away this year after a fight with Parkinson's, among other things. And um, he was a character and a fantastic stockman. And when he gave up his, his Holsteins, he moved on to Blackies of all things and Blueface Leicesters. And because he was a natural stockman, he made a hell of a good job of both of them. Um, and just a, a downright nice fella and a lot of fun. Uh, a, a real a real proper character. And uh, yeah, he'll be sadly missed. And another another guy locally that a lot <coughs> you guys maybe won't know, but he was a legend in his day among blackface sheep was um, Selby Wilson. And Selby was... In his heyday at Tollis Hill, when Tollis Hill was at the top of the tree, in the days when Corrigan bought the tops from Tollis Hill, and Selby was the was the, at the heart of the team there, and then um, he was a real old school. Selby was in his nineties when he died, and um, smashing fella. He lived locally around here. His family all still live locally, and then um, when we moved down here, the first year we were at Penny Muir Show, um, I hadn't really had much to do with Selby. But I'd heard of him, and um, you never meet a nicer guy, and he was really, really encouraging to to young folk within the breed, and an absolute master and a knowledge among them all his all his life. So he was a he was a smashing fella. That's fantastic to hear, isn't it? And and when we get 
old folk or older folk like that. Of course, we're all getting on now apart from Andrew, but uh, we older folk like that that, that that will pass that knowledge on to the youngsters and, and make a passion and make an, an, an effort to do that. I think it's uh, we can get old and grumpy, old grumpy bastards as we can all. We can all, Andrew's probably a grumpy bastard as well. He's not as old, but we can all get on and be older grumpy bastards. And and, um, and but it's about making the effort to pass that knowledge onto the youngsters. And when you say somebody as qualified as that, uh, Derek, in amongst the blackie breed, and I probably should have introduced you at the top of the show, really, as as, uh, as Derek, because you are a blackie breeder of some ilk yourself and very much involved in that breed. And maybe we'll come on to your prowess in that in a, in a second. Uh, what about uh, you, Brownie? Is, is there anybody there that's that's gone missing out of the business and in, in your end? Um, I mean, suppose the most obvious one I can think of is just recently was the passing of Doddy Weir. Um, I think you know, we're going to come on to that in a minute. We will. Another man I want to mention, and I'm not sure if you guys will have come across this, was uh, Ian Grant and, and Sir Ian Grant, as he became. And Ian, a fantastic man, and I will do a podcast on him um, uh, one of the days because a man just highly respected within the agricultural industry. And, and his father, Alan Grant at the Thorn, fantastic Aberdeen Angus breeder in his day. And sort of Ian stepped away from the farming and, and made his way by being uh, chairman of this, that, and the other, including. Um, the Scottish Tourist Board and and, uh, and the Castle of May Trust later on in his days and uh, my association with Ian was when I was uh, when I first started showing at, at Smithfield Show he was you know, the steward and then the chief steward and then when I became one of the stewards at the Royal Smithfield Show there down in London Ian was uh, was no longer an official, but Ian was always about there in the ring himself, and Jim Stobo, and uh, and, and Donald Bigger for that matter as well, who's sadly gone too. But uh, uh, Ian was always about there, and if there was a stucci or anything going on, he was a man. I've never seen a man level a situation so easily by saying very little, but doing things right. And I think I would say him and Donald Bigger were cut from the same cloth uh, when it came to that. So a big a big loss, uh, Sir Ian, this year, and and. Um, yeah, it, it's only quite recently as well, so uh, uh, respects to his family. Yeah, absolutely, Andy, you're right. I mean, uh, they don't they, they broke the mould when they made Ian, and uh, he was he was very well respected. Um, he he was, and my good my goodness, he was a great statesman of Scottish agriculture, and we could really do with somebody like him right now. I've never seen us so bereft of leaders in industry at the moment as we are, and we could really do with an Ian Grant. Could do with them being cloned. Um, hell of a nice man as well as, as you just mentioned too you know um, great way with him lovely man and yeah um, sadly will be missed going forward um, I don't know what age he would be would he be 81 yeah. when he passed away he was 81 yeah um, met Ian quite a few times um, most of which at the Highland Show he's very friendly with my mum and my stepdad David a hell of a nice man as I said but uh, yeah great shame but as I say all, all good things come to an end at some stage and, and uh, but Ian will have left a great legacy behind and what he's achieved represented and uh, stood for in Scottish agriculture in his time <coughs> These kind of guys that we're talking about like that are that are leave a legacy they've, they've earned it like they've, they've cut their teeth in the agriculture business it doesn't matter what yeah. line of stock and they've earned the respect because they were so phenomenally good at what they did, and that's where that's where we get these characters and these leaders from. That you know, as you said, Scott, they broke the mould when they make these kind of guys, and there is yeah. a shortage of them, right enough. But the respect these guys get, it's all it's all absolutely earned and absolutely deserved. 
and, and the effort yep. that they put in as well, that's the thing. And a lot of these efforts, as we all know, all four of us now get, get involved in various things, not least the, the, the Royal Island show that we all put a little bit of time into as well. A lot of these things, un, unsung, it's, it's, we don't do it for the money. There's no money involved in a lot of these things. And you think when you are an ambassador for the industry, people think, well, look, you're there, you're earning this and earning that. And very often there's no payback on that apart from just your name, your name in the paper or somebody respecting what you say. So it is... It is We've all sat on councils, and I, I know we all probably still do sit on councils as well. We have a day job, but we have a duty to put a bit back, and that, and that comes but comes back without any financial recompense at all. Yeah, yeah these kind of people are, are few and far between now, Andy. There's less and less people now want to... I suppose less and less people... More people have got less time than they ever had before. There's less people working on farms. Uh, those who are working on farms, their day's a lot fuller than it used to be, you know, and they wish there was an eighth day in the week now. And I think... Whilst there's, there's there's maybe a lot of people who would love to be helping out and doing the kind of things that perhaps you just mentioned that we do or any other voluntary role which which helps to further a cause, um, you know there's just not the time on farms these days for people to go and do that and that's only going to get worse. That's not going to get better, unfortunately. Sure, and 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 as you said, these people who have an have a, an advantage and some of those have an advantage where they 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 inherited into to bigger estates and farms and what have you and spend their time putting that back in or they earn their living in another way. And I mean, there's, yeah, there's people. I've got a neighbour, um, John Cameron up the road who, from Balboothie. You guys will know another legend in the business yep. and earned his money. And John's still still gladly with us at the moment. And and uh, but earned their money in many other ways. And then but put their effort back into to trying to further the agriculture industry from out with the industry and I think that's uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have those guys in there and it's a shame when we lose them absolutely yep Okay, we'll move on to one more more recently and a sad loss and that's uh, Neil Robertson from the from the Scottish farmer, and 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 we'll all know now from from the, the crack that he'd always he'd always give, the fun we'd always have, and him, you know, him and Fletch and John Fraser around there were always just a pleasure to, to go to any show anywhere, and and uh, he'd I have a have a have a joke to to tell and, and a leg to pull, and uh, you guys will all know. Him. Yeah, he certainly kept a lot of people right uh, around the. I know at the market, if you saw him going about at the getting his pictures, uh, taking the pictures, he was definitely the man that was shouting and uh, roaring all the boys to keep them right, but he was. Uh, I was some man. He's a huge character. Yeah, he was. He was Andy. You're right. Um, uh, hell of a nice man. And wouldn't you just love to have been a fly in the wall in the Scottish farmer days and the golden days of the Scottish farmer? When uh, not to say that they're not golden days now. <laughs> Ken Fletcher, if you're listening. There's there's my subscription gone. Um, no, no, you know, can you can you imagine just being in the company of John Fraser and uh, Neil and uh, and Ken in in the in the show days, even at Smithfield and times like that. I mean, just legendary crack, great fun, and and so accomplished at his job as well. Neil, he always got the best out of his subjects because he was just such a a cheery character, and he always did everything with a kind of cheeky smile. You know, he's a great lad, super bloke. Aye, I've I've no lot to add to that. He's just a an absolute topper. Um, yeah, you remember him even at young farmers conferences. He used to come at them and cause mayhem and take photos and all the rest of it and, uh, <laughs> of all the not all you'll the, be glad some of them didn't see the light of day not all the after party not. stuff just the official stuff and then he would get involved I was going to ask that did you have to get the lawyers involved in that I was going to say there must be <laughs> did, does anybody know where he's kept his negatives there that's probably something we should ask him <laughs> Ken Fletcher, Ken Fletcher will have them somehow. He'll be leaking them out slowly through the year next year, likely. Uh, Fletcher will keep for insurance, I tell you, because he'll probably be someone him as well. Hey, Goldie, I think if the money's right, you'll get them. <laughs> oh, definitely. Hey, if the money's right with anything, surely, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Goldie, you're the nearest uh, fletch. He's just up the road from you. So if you see him over Christmas, any negatives on uh, anything on any of us, we'll just we'll give him money for him. He's got it's his. Go easy with the budget, mind Goldie. He's... <laughs> I need to sort him out anyway because I'm still trying to sort him out for the misprint and my uh, my wedding photo that he put in the Scottish farmer yet. So what did he say? <clears throat> he's, he's keeping. Oh, don't worry. He's keeping out my way. I'll I'll, I'll keep that one for a later date. <laughs> what did he say? You were previously married. <laughs> no, no, still married. <laughs> Ah, that's the problem. <laughs> he didn't say he used to be a hooker when he said us, did he? I actually used to be a hooker in my rugby days, actually. So it, 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 it would have been factually correct. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, we're on the subject of hookers, and of course, uh, moves us on to rugby players, and Scott uh, I mentioned it just briefly just now. Well, let's let's talk about the yeah, the great giraffe that was uh, Doddy Weir, and, and a man all of us have rubbed shoulders with, although I've never rubbed his shoulder, but, but half twice the height of me, and twice mm-hmm. the height of all of us, I would say, and uh, the giraffe that he was, and... and uh, fantastic man and a farmer in the borders and, and, and I think Derek he'd probably be a, be a neighbour with you would he down that way there and a man you'd know quite well Yeah when I was at Pimtate and his family lived just right across the valley and um, I, uh, super family um, just a typical borders uh, family farming business um, and just good crack, all of them you know but, um, <clears throat> yeah Doddy I mean Oh, where do you start? There's been so much in the media about it and all of it's true. I mean, the one that sticks in your mind is that when he came into a room, he just lit it up and uh, it's true. His his company was infectious. His smile was infectious um, and his attitude to life was just amazing. Yeah, yeah, you guys will know him better than me. And as I mentioned, rugby will go on to rugby players. There's a bit of rugby in your family as well. But uh, Scotty, again, a big rugby man there and a borders man as well. You, 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 same thing, you'd have been a lot of respect. Yeah, massive. Andy, I ended up going down to his memorial service um, on Monday. And I think uh, the uh, the atmosphere um, was one of a very celebratory atmosphere. Um, I suppose um, Doddy, in his own words, had had uh, said he'd lived through the unique circumstances of all the dinners he was going to. He very much viewed that as that was his wake. He was living through his wake for the last year and a half, going to dinners and stuff to raise money, and he absolutely loved it all. And I suppose Monday, as sad as it was, the poor fellas are no longer with us. It's a great celebration of his life and, and the legacy he's left behind with his fundraising for M&D. And just... Um, Everybody had a good story. He's one of these guys. Everybody had a, a good story to, to a good experience of Doddy's times. So, I mean, uh, listening to Jim Telfer in the SRU podcast last week, um, he was talking about an old lady that lived in Hoyk had said she only met uh, Doddy once about 10 years ago. And she was just instantly uh, taken by the impression that he left behind and uh, has followed him all the way through his journey of M&D. And, and uh, you know, he just seemed to... He just seemed to pick people up and take him along on his journey. He was just that sort of infectious um, kind of personality. His wife, Kath, was described him in the papers as a, an incredible force of nature, uh, which is pretty much what he was. John Jeffries described him at, uh, his, in his eulogy as a pest. He was a pest on the pitch. He was a pest off the pitch. Um, and he was a pe- because he was a pest in life, generally speaking, um, he made great inroads with uh, with the scientists and doctors looking to push the scientists around the corner. Doddy refused to accept that M&D was an incurable condition and, and uh, to that end, his legacy was that he wanted to make sure that 
that uh, he said MND is not incurable. It's just a disease we haven't found a cure for yet. And he was um, in his pursuits. He was relentless in his pursuits to make sure that the funding was in place. If not for him, and as it turned out, it wasn't in time for Doddy, but for people coming along the line after Doddy, uh, that they were their fate would hopefully would be different different to Doddy's as a result of the the science and the research that were going through the disease as a result of his fundraising um, efforts. But uh, uh, I remember distinctly when there was a fundraising game in uh, Melrose for Doddy, uh, which I played in at the age of 50, which I should have known better with. Um, I was playing with his brother Tom, who I'm, who I'm actually really good pals with. And uh, in that particular game, I tore my hamstring really badly, almost off my backside, and the pain was excruciating. And Tom broke his ribs and... and uh, Whilst Tom was rolling about in the waiting room in the BGH um, at 10 o'clock at night, I was at home trying to get comfortable with poking pillows in various positions to try and ease the pain in my torn hamstring. And uh, I got a text message from Tom, are you comfortable yet? And I said, no, how are you? He says, I haven't been seen yet. Mind you, I'm not sure what they're going to do. Anyway, um, fast forward a couple of weeks, I went down to, I was judging Suffolk's in Northumberland show, which at that point in time I thought I'd never be able to do. And we're walking along the, the, the alleyways past the trade stands and here's Doddy's, uh, Doddy's there with his Hutchison drainage trade stand. And uh, Jane was a little bit in front of me, obviously, because she was able to walk better. And uh, he goes, oh, Jane, it's yourself. And then uh, I thought, oh, this will be good. And uh, I walked along and he gave Jane a big hug and welcomed her like a long lost friend. And he said, and you, he goes, you and my brother, you should know bloody better. He said, uh, Playing rugby at your age, he said, you need to have a word with yourself. <laughs> I said, oh, no problem, Doddy. Uh, you're welcome, by the way. And he goes, no, no. He goes, you need to stop that nonsense. It's bloody silly. <laughs> <laughs> so you got all your thanks in one day. But that was just Doddy, you know, just a just a great character. Just a uh, nice guy, a great man, lost. Um, a, massive, a massive ambassador for Borders, the Borders of Scotland, for Scottish rugby, for M&D, the whole nine yards, and all around good guy. And we'll be sadly missed. Mm. Absolutely well said, Scotty. I knew you, you would have known him more than most in Scottish rugby. He'd, he'd be be similar age, I guess. Would, would you be? No, he'd be a bit older than you, would he? Uh, thanks, Andy. No, he's actually uh, two years younger. <laughs> <laughs> two foot taller. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, an amazing guy. Super blown, just as, as Derek said. You know, great neighbours to have. Lovely family. The whole family are lovely. Um, and, uh, yeah, he'll be a great miss. And, and you're absolutely right, and, and I'm sure Andrew will will endorse as well, and, and Andrew will be a rugby fan the same as the rest of us. But uh, we talk about guys involved in rugby. I know we've just gone to a football World Cup, and, and uh, yeah, it was some great entertainment. But I mean, we're all four of us uh, involved and, and, and enjoy our rugby days. And, and, and rugby seems to have some sort of synonymous with the farming with the farming business. There's been a lot of um, great farmers that have played rugby and then gone back about their business into farming after that, Doddy being one of them. And there's a few more on the board, as you mentioned, JJ, of course, uh, uh, John Jeffries uh, from Kelso there, the white shark who we know him, and I knew JJ, um, and John and I have had some chat over the years, and uh, a fantastic family there, uh, Jeffries. And, and, and again, um, Derek would be somebody you'd know quite well. Yeah, JJ's actually... <coughs> Uh, I went from being Doddy's neighbour to almost being JJ's neighbour. They're, well, they're on the same estate. It's a slightly different kind of farm, but they're um, yeah, they're on the same estate, and we we have a, an annual gathering for the estate rent lunch, and uh, JJ's usually there, and you get a bit crack with him. And his his late father Jimmy was was absolutely brilliant, Patter. Um, Jimmy was ninety odd when he died a couple of years ago, and um, he was he was super knowledgeable. And uh, on rugby and uh, on livestock, mm. um, 
and JJ's just JJ's just down to earth. He's good crack, um, and just good folk, you know. Yeah, and, and Jimmy, as you said, his father was one of the first men to bring bring Shirley cattle into the country at Kersnow, and some fantastic cattle came out of Kersnow, and, and still do. Shirley cattle are still there, be close on fifty years. They've still got them there, and probably. Somebody we should have a chat with him on my podcast another day, but yeah, a, a good fella. And uh, a few about the borders there you, you've got there, and uh, and Derek, your own family there, Brian Redpath, I think is, is your cousin. The Brian is, is another great rugby player. Yeah, my cousin, yeah, scrum half for Scotland. Um, I, I don't see that much of Brian. I was up at the um, Fiji game in the the, at the autumn test there, and uh, actually met up with Brian because Cam, his son, was playing. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, we had a wee bit of a family reunion at that, and it was it was good to see him. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit of a, a glitch in the family though, because um, I would be the by a long way the worst rugby player in our family. My bro- my brother played, and uh, my cousins all played. And um, when I went to college, uh, the the lecturer that used to run the, the Oatridge rugby team. His eyes lit up when he had a red path in his team. And then <laughs> we had the first week's training and I couldn't catch the cold. And uh, it was it was kind of embarrassing, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I was, I was pretty crap. But I could um, I could wipe out a kind of couple of second rows in one move. But catching the ball, I was bloody useless. <laughs> yes, your talents are not wasted, though, Derek. Every rugby team needs a good kitty, man. Yeah. I could do that. And you mentioned Cammy. <laughs> you mentioned Cammy, Cameron Redpath, and those guys listening overseas. But you haven't a clue what rugby is. But Cameron Redpath is is up and coming. Fly half, I think, for for Scotland, and uh, he's in the team there along with Young Hastings and one or two. And it's nice to see the youngsters, second generation, coming through into back into the professional sport, isn't it? Aye, definitely. Like it's it's amazing to see all these these youngsters that their dads played together for Scotland, and uh, it's amazing how many of them are coming through. At the next generation, and it, it makes it good to watch. Uh-huh. Andy, you mentioned there's a lot of farming connections with with rugby union in Scotland, and in particular the borders. I think, on reflection, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, well, even if you go back to, you know, none of us can, but if you go way, way back through the sort of pre-World War, etc., um, much of the national teams, because it was an amateur sport, were made up of farmers, tradesmen, you know, people who did physical jobs. And because they were physical, because they were physical jobs, they didn't. They were great at training. Obviously, they were a step ahead of the rest of the guys. And I think you know, and up and through the amateur era, if you if you look at the Scotland team, I suppose running up to through the through the eighties and through the nineties, mm-hmm. hell of a hell of a farmers in the in the in the squad at one level or another. And I think a lot of that was just down to, for a start, they had a foundation level of of rugged natural fitness because of the work they were doing. I mean, they went to training. Um, Anyway, on a Tuesday or Thursday, whenever for their club, they were a step ahead of the guys who were sitting on their backs in an office uh, doing a clerking job all day, uh, like an auctioneer, Andy. Um, or um, you know, and I think I think I think because of that, uh, because of that, they would that that sort of sets the tone for generations following them through, and and uh, you get this real sort of there's rep- there's family representation like the Red Paths, you know, go, going right back through um, you know um, Borders Rugby over the years. And Elliot's another very popular name that's that went through Scottish rugby and the British Lions as well in the sixties and the seventies. Uh, great Borders farmers, um, and it's just I think that's what it comes down to. Really, I think it's just their, their rugged fitness from from doing a physical job just laid, laid the foundations for that sport. You got a hoggy in your district as well, of course. Well, yeah, we have at Birkenside. Yeah, um, we've got uh, well Carol Hogg that did the eulogy for Doddy on on Monday 
his family are from Beamerside, um, and uh, yeah, they're they're farming farming family as well in the in the Scottish borders. Birkenside, Birkenside, sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew, they'll be you, you, not to be left out that down there in the in the Dumfries and Galloway district. There's a few rugby players come out of there. Is that a sport that you you get involved in? Yeah, I was involved in it when I was uh, back in my young days before I started young farmers and drinking and all that. Carry on. Um, the uh, the rugby was uh, quite a, I, I thoroughly enjoyed playing it. It was uh, in Canaan Academy. Uh, it was a very avid rugby fan uh, teacher. Who was a teacher was uh, Mr. McCann, Colin McCann. And he was uh, he managed to pull together a team, and we actually played very well eventually, and we done very well in the junior levels, under fifteens, under sixteens. Um, some of the boys that came up through the ranks were, were one of the most notable would be Alex Dunbar. Oh yeah, um, I remember holding a tackling bag for that boy, and I didn't want to do it very often. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, I mean uh, Alex I played with Alex, and he went up through the ranks in Scotland. Uh, his family were farming just outside Johnston Bridge. Uh, and they moved to Tasmania, of all places, and they're farming, they're, they're a dairy farm out there at the moment, um, but I think Alex is now uh, retired and he's back. Uh, it's, uh, there's been a few few back in, a few back round about me, but as, uh, there's, I've not got as many years as likes of Scott or that, so I can't really come back round and see who all I've played in. <laughs> but it, it, it's brilliant, <laughs> not, not, just, not just in Scotland or in the borders. I went to, to school in, in Lupton on the Herefordshire borders just down there, and I was down for a oh, reunion yeah. recently, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, you know, the old Luptonians have done very well over the years, and come to my old school, I went back, I didn't I didn't play for the old Lux, but I played for the school, but I went back down there to a reunion just recently, and uh, yeah, the likes of Richard Hall and these guys, the Hop farmers and, and and Will Chase and Johnny Price and all those guys recognise names in amongst the potato industry nowadays, and, and uh, they all came through that that route as well. And it's just, it, 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 I suppose, what I'm saying really, it's uh, it, it's very much over the years, or as as Scotty said, yeah, going back the way the farmers were the backbone of of, of what we now have as a professional rugby industry. And uh, and yeah, good for you, Doddy, and and, and the rest of you guys that, uh, that that went before that. I mean, even now, Andy, there's still, like, you look at, at club level, I mean, I don't know, uh, I don't keep up with it just as much around about us at the moment, but uh, Scotty maybe will, and uh, at club level, the majority of players that you see in the first 15 are uh, from a farming background, one way or another, still, yeah. uh, they might not yeah. be making it up to the big le- the big leagues, but they're, uh, they're still working at grassroots, and uh, a lot of them still like to play just to, to keep themselves fit, uh, and a lot of them, their fathers, uh, stop them playing eventually in case they get injured before lambing time or, uh, or such like. You're absolutely right, Andrew. You're absolutely right, and I mean, JJ being an exception, but I remember him saying as well. I mean, it, and a lot of the other guys that you'd go, you can't go away and play professional rugby because you've got a farm to run, and, and a lot of the guys would have been denied that chance of, of making, of getting that national shirt because uh, you know, it, it was that or farming. It, it, only if. Um, Rugby got players got played the same as football players, and uh, we'd get some diversification in farming there. With uh, you'd be encouraging your son to say, "Never mind coming here, lambing the sheep. Go and earn some money, and then you can come back, and uh, we can we can buy some more sheep." So that was something I wanted to move on to, and it's great to have a chat about uh, about rugby. One guy I probably should mention in the rugby, of course, is uh, Henry Slade, who's uh, who's one of our English golden boys there, and I think he's well related to Robin Slade, who's probably one of our great sheep golden boys as well in in the in the sheep industry. Won just about everything. So boy, down. Exeter there, but uh, I'm just holding my own up there for the, for the England side because <laughs> we're the whipping boys for this World Cup coming up. And although the, we ha- we do at last actually have a have a coach who um, who will have been in the job literally nine months before we get to a World Cup, but he he hope. 
Oh, he's will get the one way or another, surely. <laughs> Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> I was, I was actually, I was having a look uh, when you were saying about it, Andy, just to see uh, the list of current professionals uh, or uh, very well noted professionals actually through, that play played professional rugby that are farmers. And I tell you, looking at the list, there's a lot of them are actually Irish, and it, it, that probably follows through a lot of stuff. I mean, the Irish boys are a lot of them do come uh, come forward in that side. I mean, there's uh, there's likes to Sean O'Brien, um, he's a farmer through in Carlo. I had a phone call uh, one day and it was from a guy, I had literally a phone rang and I was driving in the car and the phone and rang and it's like, isn't Rory Best, phone me up and uh, uh, yeah, he's one yeah, a list, great yeah. rugby player and, and, and uh, fantastic rugby player but a uh, good farming outfit as well and he was, they breed Angus cattle so you're right, there's a lot of them, a lot of them come through. Yeah. I remember, I remember a, a diamond interview, I watched that happening live, it was it was Sean O'Brien. He was European Player of the Year. He was doing an interview with Sonia O'Sullivan just after the European Cup final. And she said, Sean O'Brien, um, she goes, um, who would have thought this time last year, a new man in the Leinster pack, and she says, and here we are, 12 months down the line, you're Europe, you've won the European Cup and you're, European, and you're European Player of the Year. Uh, how does it feel? And he goes, ah, oh, yeah, you know, uh, this time last year I was uh, cutting calves on my dad in the, in the, in the, in the shed at, at, uh, back in Carlo. And uh, he was just, he was, there was people looking around at me saying, what's he saying, Scotty? And I said, oh, he, was castri- he was castrating calves in a shed uh, at home on the farm in Carlo. <laughs> it, was, it was brilliant. It was just superb. There's, uh, there's, there's a notable uh, English family, though, that you've missed off, Andy. Uh-huh. You had Ben, Nick, and Tom Youngs. Oh, Tom Youngs, yeah. 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 Farming family from Norfolk. Uh-huh. Yeah. Dusty Hair, what do you call Julian White? Yeah. Funny, funny you mentioned Dusty Hair, Scott. Um, I was, <laughs> when we started this kind of chat the other day about thinking about rugby players, I remember watching Dusty Hair on, well, whatever Country Vile was called before it was that rubbish. Country Vile, it's now called. And uh, he was on it like they did a, a bit just before lambing time, and he had a whole lot of Suffolk cross yows. And Dusty here was a he was a character when, when he set up a, a kick. He was uh, he was like a fart in the wind. He used to, used to pra- <laughs> practice kicking to one post. Is that right on the farm? They used to say. And the one we probably should mention as well is your man that uh, captained uh, Scotland to win the last um, Grand Slam. Or did I did I mention the last Grand Slam? Maybe the Grand Slam before that in 1980. Come on, David Soul. That's the man. David Soul was was, uh, was farming us. Maybe he still is up in Perthshire. Um, he was a grain trader during the time that he was playing for Scotland. That's what he was doing for a living. Um, I don't I don't exactly know what he's doing now. Well, he got into Lancaster Scotland and bred some bloody good ones. To be fair, then uh, I think he okay. got them all in uh, right. soon after. But yeah, he, he did well in the Angus breed. Yeah, he, he bought. He got into Suffolk as well and uh, built up a, a flock of Suffolk and then cashed them in as well. So there seems to be a pattern emerging, Andy. So, so you mentioned about breeding Suffolks, and of course Suffolks are a great breed, Scotty, you're involved in. I was in Texas, I think I've got Rylands now, we, we've got uh, Deconair, Blackie Breeder, and we've got Andrew breeding uh, Hampshires, and we've all got a few sheep of our own. And I suppose I've got, I've got a bit of an, an issue, really, that we all say our breed is the best, and you think, well, they're the best for the right courses, you know, the Texas, the Beltex, they all. and I know Robert, um, Robert Patterson, who was on the call with us last year, had made, you know, done very well breeding Beltex crossed with Charolais and selling a Beltex Charolais cross tops at Kelso for good money. And I kind of wondered, really, why aren't we using more crossbred tops? I think Andrew, you know, a Hampshire cross with a with a Suffolk would make a bloody good sire. And and uh, and, uh, and, and, and I tell you, I tell you, Andy, what I saw a very good cross was actually a Hampshire with a Beltex. Huh? 
some of the best looking sheep I've ever seen, and I am not keen on Beltex at all, but um, they were they were phenomenal, huge growthy sheep. I think it was uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, from Ireland yeah. who took the Kelso. He took uh, I think it was half a dozen or so Shearlands. And they were Beltex cross Hampshire's, and they were phenomenal. Kevin, a great breeder. Uh, Kevin, a great breeder of both breeds, to be fair. But I mean, yes, I said, definitely, my yeah. father bred something called a Blue Tex, which was the, we had Blue Domains, and the last of the Blue Domains, when he brought the Beltex in, he banged the Beltex mm-hmm. across the Blue Domains, and some of those Blue Tex tops were, were great. And the Blue the blue Domain was guilty of not having an identity, I suppose, of sort of where it belonged in, on, on, in the world. And I, I suppose I'm just wondering, and I'm going to piss everybody off in the sheep industry by saying this, but is there a market there more for us turning out societies of of, uh, of Hamtex or, or Hambex or whatever you'd call a Hampshire cross there? Or, or, or the, or, or, or the... <laughs> well, I would, like speaking to Kevin, I, obviously I'm I'm not that uh, long into the Hampshires, and uh, we are going to grow it uh, through time. But uh, speaking to Kevin, there's a massive market for that. Uh, Hampshire Cross Beltex. He's sold a huge number of them uh, round about him and even across here, um, which uh, economically you wouldn't think would make sense. A crossbred tup coming across the water for the money that it would cross, cost him that, uh, and cost the buyer. But uh, no, he says it's certainly a cross that a lot of people are looking at. Obviously, with the, 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 the Beltex has been a very good finished lamb, uh, but taking their time to get to that finishing stage, and the Hampshire has been very well renowned for being fast finishing it, it seems to be quite a good cross um, I, I can't say I mean I know I don't know Derek or Derek and Scott maybe say uh, have different ideas on it but I've got Derek and Scott always... Derek and Scott on mute at the moment until we finish this conversation <laughs> <laughs> that's a better idea um, Probably a good idea I then. always found I always found <laughs> when we were uh, when when I was auctioneering um, there would be the odd uh, cross top or there would be the odd cross bull would come through and I mean, it's, it's obviously going to take time to get the right genetics through it and get it correct, but at the time, you would find that you would get the worst of both crosses coming through in the progeny. So, obviously saying like the Hampshires are very fast-growing, but they're quite fine-boned and they're very woolly, um, and the Beltex are quite slow-growing but very shapey. You would end up with a slow-growing, woolly sheep lamb at the end of it, and you think, what the fuck, I've just spent all this money in here at Kel so far, this fancy... <laughs> Hampshire across Beltex, and I've got the worst of both worlds. It, it's, um, it's a great, it's a great line, isn't it? To say, I'll bring these guys in in a second, but, but um, the, the American guys will say the same thing originally when they started by selling Charolais uh, cross Simmental cross whatever it is uh, bulls as hybrids, and then as the years went on, they got all the figures together to go with those till they were getting the best out of every one of those breeds and and a hybrid or the stabilizers and all these things. Are, and it's a common common conversation that I wind up everybody up on this on this podcast with, but in the cut well but it's it's the the the, the breeds maybe the pedigree breeds have lost a bit of their identity in the u.s by the fact that they have gone down this hybrid route to the fact that you know the pedigree breeds purpose is only really to feed the hybrids to to make the the cross animals that they need Uh, and i just wonder you know and we've hung on and hung on and we are hanging on to our pedigree breeds in the uk and our traditions and what have you whether we in in 20 years down the line, if we're all sitting there on the same conversation, and, and help us if we are, and, and with our Zimmer frames, um, we might be seeing more. I don't, more think, I could, cro- I don't think I could carry you that long. <laughs> we might see more crossbred uh, crossbred rams being used within the industry if we got a bit more data now. Now, in the days when we got more technical uh, achievements to do that, uh, I'll throw it back to yeah, you, Andrew, before, before I let these guys dive in. No, I think it's the same. If you look, I mean, obviously. 
a lot of your listeners won't be into the sort of dairy industry, but looking into the dairy side of things, genomics is becoming a very big thing. Um, and I think if the beef industry is to move to move to that next stage, I mean, with the crossbreds and hybrids, um, I certainly think that they're going to have to start looking at the genomic side of it and actually getting the... You're not necessarily going to have the best looking beast there, but the best genetic beast that's going to give you what you want, which is at the end of the day, which is the commercial side of it, which is your your length, your depth, your size, your shape, uh, everything your, everything that's going to give you your, your, your main cuts. Um, and I think that's something that's definitely going to have to be looked at. And I mean, I know in the, the Hampshire's, they're starting to do the, uh, they're doing DNA testing, but they're, they're obviously looking at doing starting that sort of genomic, uh, genomic register within it. And I think that's, if this hybrid cross is going to start having any sort of viability, it's going to have to start working with these, the figures. maybe not necessarily the best looking sheep, but the figure side of it. I mean, I know Signet are, Signet are sort of pushing it forward at the moment um, and there's arguments to be made about the figure side of it with them but until the figures and, and everyone's sort of working with figures until they start to get to the numbers I mean you look at percentages in the catalogue of their accuracy yeah. I, I mean to, to show something with figures no matter how high or low that they are with a percentage rate of less than ninety percent, I mean, how are you meant of an accuracy? How are you meant to follow that? Um, and it's not going to get any better until either everyone does it or everyone stops yeah. it. And the argument can be made for a lot of different things within this, but I mean, for it to be right, I mean, there has to be a, a, a very high genetic bank built <clears throat> before they start uh, pushing a lot of this stuff. You know yourself, and a lot of the people listening will know. It's uh, having a good sheep standing in front of you is is a very is the main thing at the moment. Um, the genetic, the genetically best sheep probably isn't the best looking at the moment, and that will change once they start to to use a few more around, Dandy. I mean, yeah. Just I've pissed off uh, uh, <clears throat> Scott Brown and, and uh, Derek no, Redpath. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Keep them back. Right, let them go. Well, what you said though at the start, Andy, about commercial traits—that's that's where your hobby breeds end up, because they forget the 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 commercial traits. And every breed should remember that. Is if you've got the commercial traits, you've got something that's viable and useful. But the, uh, uh, Andrew touched on there, like the the crossbreds. The problem with them is consistency, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. You don't get the consistency with them, but if you could get the good bits from both then you know we all know that hybrid vigor it doesn't matter whether it's fertility growth flesh everything really hybrid vigor generally helps them all so but for generations farmers have been trying it and making making some progress but there's a reason why the purebreds are there too there is the Aberfell. I mean, I, I did an interview with a guy that runs the Aberfell sheep, who's now one sheep farmer of the year, I think. For the, uh, and uh, there are these other breeds. And yes, you're right. Consistency is the key. What do you say, Scott? Well, I think the sheep industry is going to change beyond belief in the next five years. It has to because we're going to have we to. There we go. Um, people are going to have to be able to produce lamb lambs off a low cost production system on grass where possible. Um, but uh, apart from anything else, we've, we've got a couple of obstacles in the way, which we'll come to later on, which is QMS and the grading system. It's very much the tail wagging the dog. It's not serving us well at all. We're getting 
in the sheep industry at the moment, we're getting paid for producing kilos of mince, lamb mince, because uh, there's no uh, there's no emphasis being placed at all on the repeatable eating experience. We're, if we're looking to grow the lamb consumption in the UK, we're not going to be able to do it on selling e-grade carcasses, I'm afraid. And coming back to what and uh, Goalie was proposing, or uh, his experiences with that Hampshire Beltex, I can totally see, and uh, Goldie, why that would be a success. Um, you only have to, if there's anybody listening in there and they want to go on YouTube after this, if you please go onto YouTube and type in Lamb Pro Australia. Anybody who's progressive in the sheep industry in the UK should take a real good look at that and, and take on board what that guy's doing. He sells 850 rams a year, and his focus is purely on intramuscular fat, and he's getting a 25% increase in return on his lambs over the over the av- over the next best producers in Australia with his lambs because he's getting repeatable uh, he's getting repeat business for people buying rams behind from Fan. Now to give you a benchmark on where we're at in the UK with that, obviously I did a bit of work on that myself and I was CT scanning my Suffolk. We had the second highest intramuscular fat sheep in the UK of all breeds uh, two years ago with an intramuscular fat of four and a half percent. The next best was I think four point seven or four point eight. The fellow who has Lamb Pro Australia is producing Hampshire down rams with an intramuscular fat percentage of 7%. That's mm-hmm. average. That's not his top, that's average. And um, when you look at the cross-section of these chops that he produces and, and he was he was cooking on one, on one particular occasion, it's just like looking at a Wagyu, a Wagyu um, chop uh, on a, in, a, in a lamb shape. Uh, phenomenal. And I mean, that's not, that's what we need to do in the UK to be able to actually grow the lamb consumption in the UK and make it a repeatable experience mm-hmm. and to avoid it and stop it from being becoming a commodity because that's a race to the bottom, especially when we're now so vulnerable in the global market. So, Luke, Scott, I'm sorry the, to interrupt you, but uh, the, yeah. like my mouth watering at the thought of this Wagyu lamb chop, but how do you convince the housewives in, in the UK to buy a, a chop that's 7 or 8% fat? intramuscular on top of the fat that's on the back. I hear what you're saying the pair of you. Can I just wind that back a little bit and just explain to, let's say we've got some listeners on here who maybe aren't sheep producers or, or might be American or from different different ideals. So we're saying intramuscular fat. So we are talking fat within the eye muscle rather than obviously fat around the outside. So we want to cut down the, you know, the, 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 the we've worked for years and years cutting the, the fat around the outside of, of the lamb chop. And now we're talking about putting fat within the lamb chop, which is something that Suffolk's always prided itself on. So is that what you're talking, Scott? Yeah, yeah it is. I mean, when you're doing CT scans, you can get a CT scan of the, of the L3, which is looking straight out of the chop the only other way you can get that image is by killing the animal and hanging it up mm-hmm. um, but they're able to make really accurate and it's highly heritable I mean it's as heritable as day live weight gain or, or eye muscle size or fat is on an, on an animal so it's a highly heritable trait okay. and something that would if you selected for it would come through very quickly and yeah Derek we're talking about we're, 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 we're talking about intramuscular fat so that's the, the white spots of fat peppered through the eye muscle of the of the chop okay. as opposed to you know a fat on the a fat rind on the top of the on the, which is on the outside of the animal which is something different um, and I think to answer your question as to how do we get a white wife to embrace buying that or going looking for that lamb I think to start off with that's very much going to be a um, a privileged eating experience, I think, to start with, uh, because for a start, there's not going to be enough of them in the country. Because uh, when I've when I've explored this on behalf of the Suffolk Sheep Society, when I've chairman of the commercial committee, um, we uh, I spoke to a major retailer, and he said, "I hear you, and it was something to, worthwhile getting into." But where are you on the scale of rams within the country that are CT scanned with levels of four and a half percent and above? And I said, "Well, we there's 450 ram lambs scanned in total in the UK." across uh, seven different breeds 
And even within my own top 10 lambs, there's only about two lambs that have an, have an intramuscular fat reading of above four. So we are nowhere near it, but we should, we need to, we need to start embracing, embracing with the terminal sire breed, certainly, this level of technology to take, I mean, if the if QMS are, I mean, I, mean, I hate harping back to QMS, but if they're serious about promoting PGI protected status, Scottish lamb, they're going to have to do it on how it eats and, se- and eat selling the view, eating selling the view is not good enough. You need to be able to, because it's not different to anybody else's lamb. Uh, they have to be able to promote the fact that because it's got this intramuscular fat through it, uh, and I know there'll be a lot of Beltex breeders and continental sheep breeders listening to this, and oh, very good, you're looking after yourself. I don't have Suffolk sheep anymore, but I am very precious about our meat trade, meat industries in the UK, in, the, in Scotland in particular, and I want to be able to make sure that we we still have a sheep industry yeah, going forward and in, in generations to come as a result of decisions that we make in the next two or three years. Scotty, if you stop there, that's fantastic. Uh, um, that's an insight you've got into to that there, and something I didn't know, and our listeners probably don't know. I'd like to think there'd be a Ryland there that might be introduced into that hybrid when we start putting that together, uh, as well as a Hampshire. But that's me. Uh, that's me paddling my own my uh, own uh, canoe there. But as you said, if we are going to go down that route, then it's almost about breeding an animal that is is capable of producing that intramuscular fat at the level that you're talking about, and that probably isn't one single pedigree animal. That's probably a, a a crossbred or a hybrid, which is kind of where I started this conversation. Uh, Derek, what do you think? It, it goes back to whatever suits your system, doesn't it? And um, figures and stuff, to be fair, I'm not that hot in figures, but working mostly with a maternal breed, we have a few suffolks too, um, but you know, the, the black is a maternal breed, and trying to get figures for maternal, maternal harder, breeds yeah, of course, yeah. is much, much harder. And I think in some of the breeding programmes and some of the, the, the new breeds that have been brought in, crossbred breeds, there's maybe not enough work done on the maternal side of it. Um, but it depends what suits your system, doesn't it? Okay. Have I thrown enough of a hand grenade in here? I certainly, I've certainly rattled everybody's cage here. And uh, is there something else we can we can finish this off with, or are we deciding that uh, the crossbred hybrid ram it probably doesn't have a future yet, or are we start deciding that uh, we probably need to make one? I think Andy as well. Just um, just a final note on that discussion about crossbreeding um, to to sustain the future of purebreds. Just after, I think the cattle industry, the beef industry, has probably done it for us already in the in the UK. You just have to look at the native breeds like the Angus and the Shorthorn. Just look at the how opening the herd book to the, to to uh, crossbreeding, I suppose, of those breeds um, to to so they could adapt and shape themselves to take on the new markets and challenges that lie ahead, and see where they are now. And the, and they've really cemented themselves in the last four or five years as as being a a product that's got credibility and and, and has great attributes. People want and the people want to use them for that reason. It's fantastic, isn't it? I hear exactly what you're saying. It's, I totally agree with you. We're all on the, singing off the same page. Well, when you listen to to Americans and, and some of my previous podcasts, and, and they sit there and there'll be guys, hello, you guys in the US and, and, and Canada and, and wherever the world... Um, you hear them sitting there going, "You guys are nuts!" You know, they, 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 we had, we now, <laughs> we had, we had all these traditional breeds. That, okay, and and they might have been your traditional breeds, but we took them, or our traditional breeds, and they took them, depending which way you're listening. Um, and then we made them into something that that we know is is a hybrid product that actually will take the best out of all these breeds and and, and turn it into into one animal or two or three animals which suit our environment and different environments, as Derek said, you know, suit different people, which is quite right. But I. 
I just think in the sheep industry, it's a lot easier to do because we, we've got a much shorter gestation and, and you get you, know, you get two two lambs but instead of one um, one calf. So you're, you're doubling. I mean, we all know that. You have a flock of sheep next thing you know. We've got a hundred of the bloody things. You can't get rid of them. And, and, and it's, so it would be much, <laughs> e- much easier to, to genetically develop something in the way of, uh, I would have thought, something in the way of a hybrid ram, which let's say we take a Texel and a Suffolk to top, top um, marketing sheep in the country, or the Beltex might be close a uh, Texel and a Suffolk and, and, a, and a Ryland and a Hampshire or whatever and stick those together and say right we're going to make this product which is X or, or Y and that will suit yeah, the, the market that we need for making inter, extra intramuscular or making extra wool or extra weight or whatever it is there, there, there is it should be fairly easy for somebody to do that and nobody, nobody's ever done it and, and I and I wonder why and as Derek said maybe that just you know you just end up being the worst of everything I think it's a a, a thing that that grates on my nerves quite a lot is getting preached to about how things work in New Zealand and how things work in America and how things work in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it, it's there's all all these systems. There's always something in them that you can take from and you can use at home. But what works in New Zealand won't necessarily work in our climate here. And that some of those things piss me off. But the you get. No doubt, there's a lot of the things that they do that you can you can learn from and take bits out of each system. But it, in the UK and especially in Scotland, we have such a diversity of climate and conditions and and everything, and um, it makes it it makes it a bit more interesting. But it, it makes it it makes it difficult. But it's it's now a global a global industry, so it's brilliant that we can pick up pick bits from everywhere and put them together to improve our system but not everything that works it's a, it's trial and error isn't it not everything that yeah. works there works here yeah every breed has its place and there's no doubt like hybrid figure definitely helps if if your system can work with within that and we've seen it over the last 15 20 years you know it started with people keeping texel crosses and tucking them in suffolk and it's it's same um, it's grown arms and legs since then, and there are a much bigger variety of crosses. But one thing that you see is that, that has a, a problem in itself, because to try and get consistency for the housewife, there are a huge range of crosses and breeds. And you go to the market or any day of the week, and you struggle to find, you know, the buyers are trying to buy consistency for their customers. So to try and find hundreds of lambs to suit one specific job. It, it's very tricky. And whereas I remember um, Robert McNee went to New Zealand and uh, on a scholarship and he, he gave a presentation and he showed you um, in an abattoir in New Zealand and the lambs coming down the line and they were, there was hundreds of them like peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. And that's where we lack that consistency in this country because we have such a diverse sheep industry and a diverse climate and circumstances to breed these sheep, it's consistency that's the problem. And the more crosses you chuck in, the the less consistency you're going to get. And uh, just moving on to changing subject there, I want to talk a little bit about how farmers are starting to make their their living out with the farming industry or within the farming industry, but uh, out with the commercial side of it by diversification into various things. And we do hear... uh, um, uh, 
turkeys and, and, and various things for Christmas, people selling hay for, for rabbits and what have you, but the main one seems to be diversification <laughs> into... Are we about to be able to take sheep again? <laughs> The main one seems to be diversification into property or not so much property, but uh, wooden properties, old barns, bits of sheds, anything around about the building. You can take somebody in and, and tell them it's a shepherd's hut and they can uh, sit in there and see some sheep in the district and, and believe they're having a bit of farming. And, and I'm not quite sure how the the law gets around the fact that you can have a, a farm, a shepherd's hut, as they used to have on the on the, the, the white hills of uh, the south England where the shepherd's hut would be on wheels and it would move to a different part of, of, of the chalk each day. And nowadays they have a shepherd's hut and you can stick somebody in there and it's got a bed in one corner and a stove in the other corner and maybe a fridge and, and people go there and enjoy a holiday in there. Fuck, that could be torture as far as I'm concerned. But it seems to be where everybody <laughs> wants to go. So it, 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 the shepherd's hut's becoming a thing there in Derek on, on the hills of, uh, of, the, of the borders where you are. Derek's no, really, in the but... now, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to have fire for God's sake. It's only because you chucked it. You've got to have the paraffin <laughs> fire in the corner as well. You've not been chucked out of the set again already. That's slamming time, surely. Not till May. Been, That's the doghouse. I've been chucked out of the living room because... Uh, an interest in diversification. There are not many shepherds huts around about here. There's one or two, but not very many. But we have a neighbour who migrated from the the North England a few years ago, and uh, she's got alpacas. But she's got a brilliant attitude, and she's um, she's really good with the general public. Fair play to her. Mm. And then um, she bought that place, and they've got all sorts of kind of wigwams and teepees and kind of places to stay and folk come on their holidays and at the minute she's doing the Santa Express with these alpacas and uh, that she she does really, really well. She's hell of a busy. She's got a brilliant attitude to her. Her husband's in the army. He's home quite a lot. They do a lot of the work themselves um, and they'll have a, a really good going business mm-hmm. um, on the back of these alpacas and tourism. And she, she's not frightened to have a go and get folk in, but it doesn't matter what they're doing as long as they're spending. I'm not ridiculing, and, uh, not ridiculing the, 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 the diversification. If it sounded like I was doing, everybody in the farming industry has a right to has a, has a nose, and a lot of this I have to say. And we have four men on here going to get our ass kicked by saying that, but a lot of it comes from the female side of the business, where you know there's something else we can do out with farming as as a farmer's wife, and we've seen some of this on on this farming life and and various things, but. Alpacas wouldn't wouldn't be an easy one, Derek, because their you know, livestock isn't. If you're going to take them on, they're not going to earn their keep apart from keeping the, um, looking after the general public. Or are they? Maybe it, 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 is there is there the wool and the and the whatever else yeah, they, they do? Is it just a tourist attraction? It's more or less just a tourist attraction. Uh, Lynn makes, makes a bit like a Rylands, really. Aye, <laughs> just sad, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, taller. <laughs> The um, aye, the wool is the wool's quite it's quite fine and quite. She's been doing a lot mixing it with different things and selling it and um, yeah, I think Lynn's got quite a good business sense, so she, she would sell everything, including her spit, if she could get away with it. So um, <laughs> aye, it's uh, it's a money making business, but it's all based on on tourism and getting people to come and spend their cash in a fairly remote area. 
that, that, and she does well. That is the difference, isn't it? It's easy for these farmers down the south to say, well, I'm going to go some pumpkins or what have you, but they've got a footfall going past their door. I mean, it's difficult when you're in the Cairngorms and you, know, you see three cars a week going past your road and you're not going to get the people in, but then it becomes an online thing, I suppose. But there is a lot of diversification into it, isn't it? And I'll go back to, I suppose, to the shepherd's huts and yeah, the fact you can bring these people onto your farm. And if you're in the business of, of, of tourism, then bringing the people onto the farm is great. But if you're in the business of farming, which you, I mean, you guys had died in the wool um, farmers. My, I've been at the farming industry for a generation. You died in the wool farmers that are bringing these guys onto your farm and bringing people onto your farm and having them in there and then walking around and looking at your stock and asking ridiculous questions and, and, and not knowing where their, their, their food is coming from. It's an education, but it's also a bit of a bloody um, uh, imposition, isn't it? To bring the the tourists in onto your farm no matter how much money they bring it's actually it's gonna it's gonna hurt you hurt your day to day there's a bit along the road from us uh well quite a bit along the road from us at uh, gatehouse of fleet it's a uh, lagging or gg's yard uh, for the wedding venues and and it is literally we've been there i think we've been twice and stayed in their pods that they call them I think there are 20 of them now. They used to do a, a sort of outdoor events thing. They have sort of a flying fox and a few other different things. But it's it's diversification at its best. I mean, it's on the side of a hill that you couldn't stick a blackie on. There would be, it's within, it's less than 10 acres of land that it's, it's unforageable. You couldn't do anything with it. And they've stuck 20 pods in it. They've got a... Uh, a restaurant and it's in the way to it's past Gatehouse of Fleet in the way to Stranraer and it's unbelievable what they've done in there and it is literally you couldn't do anything else with this land uh, and they've stuck 20 pods on it with some with hot tubs bits and pieces and it's amazing it's land that you couldn't produce enough money out of it to please any bank manager uh, you may have heard it Derek you may have been at a few weddings at it at Gigi's yard but it's it's ridiculous what they've done with that place. Uh, there's a couple caravan parks round about in that area that are doing quite well, but that has it's unbelievable what you would do. Like it's it's a bit of wasteland. But basically, people will come along, and, and if they've got a view, it's about a view, isn't it? Same with Derek, you've got a view of the snowy it's, hill, yeah. the snowy hills across the way, or whatever you is. But the sea will will attract that, especially where you are. And the fact that it's raining all day, you need to be make sure that <laughs> not every day, but pretty much most of them, you make sure that you're you're undercover it's and a, they can see that. But I mean, so twenty pods, I wouldn't want to be there. I want one pod, and then the next, <laughs> nearest pod being another bloody. You wouldn't know. Hundred miles away. You wouldn't know the. You wouldn't know they were there, Andy. Yeah. In all honesty, you wouldn't know. Yeah, it's that steep of. It's that steep a bit of land. You wouldn't know that other pods were there yeah. it's unbelievable and it, and it is it's it's the same with anything it's location the program location 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 mm. and it is it's where you are um but yeah scotty the same as a small farmer yourself uh, um diversification selling you know your, your own highland beef and, and and what have you and earning a living mainly out with the, uh, um your own farm there are a lot of people that you'll come across who, who make their living in, in different ways in agriculture. And yes, bringing the public yep. in is all, everything is about bringing the public in and, and, and bringing it in the right way and educating them in rather than ripping them off. Yeah, I think you're right, Andy. Um, there's, there's some people have either got a farm park, if they're by the coast and there's low enough rainfall, they can have a farm park with a shop attached to it. These two, two things usually go hand in hand. Um, my brother Gav, he's just about to uh, install. Gavin's farm is uh, just under 300 acres, uh, but he's right beside the main road, and he's about to put in uh, eight pods. 
um, and people can also um, can experience uh, you know seeing lambs at lambing time and stuff like that in the lambing shed and, and uh, they've got Highland cattle on the farm as well so they could probably go up and go up and comb a calf or something like that when we're looking at people who are can diversify the people for me that I'd be most impressed by with the minimum outlay and the maximum return are those who've turned to social media and they've got subscribers following what they're doing you know like um the Hoof GP is a great example. You know that uh, Graham Parker, uh, he's a Hoof GP. He's 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 made a phenomenal amount of money off of uh, doing a bit of hoof trimming, but also the followers he now has and subscribers on social media have just taken his income to another level. And there was a farm during COVID. That there was a there was a farm down south somewhere where they had goats and they were they had live streaming. They were live streaming the goats, and you could name a goat and follow the goat that day and, and uh, they were bringing in a phenomenal amount of money on a weekly basis. Now, I don't know what the longevity is like in those situations, but to be honest, if you've not laid the cash out, it doesn't matter. You can, if you get a big return on it uh, over a short period of time and it goes flat, goes, uh, flat as a skitter, well, that's it's no hard no uh, hard uh, deal really because you've, you've had your buck out of it. But, you know, there's there's things people are doing. I think social media is probably the way to go in the, in the short term. There's so much uncertainty in farming at the moment with what's going to happen with regards to carbon credits, um, a lot of estates taking back farms where they can. Um, you know, the amount of forestry that's going in, it's very difficult to know what farmers are going to be allowed to do by their landowners if they're tenant farmers in particular. Um, so things like social media um, is probably quite a good option. Yep, absolutely. If you can, but it's it's about a, a, um, bringing the non-farming people into the business. Every time we talk about diversification, the whole description of, of diversification is about bringing people out with farming into the farming industry and uh, and taking some money off them directly, rather than letting the people who actually benefit from the farming industry, i.e., the general public, taking it, uh, getting that through a, a supermarket. So we're all trying out to. to Cut out the middleman, and, and uh, Andrew, you, you you'd mentioned to me a while ago, and we've seen a little bit of this on this farming um, life, where farmers now or dairy farmers now starting to sell their milk directly to the public, and I think that's that's another great shot. Yeah, well, it's a it's an opportunity that uh, I think you'll you you've obviously seen within France that there's a lot of people starting to look at local and uh, how things are produced and where they're produced. There's far more of that. Uh, in the UK now than there's ever been. Yep. People want to know where their meats came from. They want to know where their milk has came from. And if that means travelling five minutes down the road to go to their local farm to take uh, a bottle, a, a reusable bottle of milk back home to their family to do for two or three days, and they're, they're more than happy to do that. And I mean, round about me at the moment, obviously I'm in... So uh, the the milk the milk capital of Scotland, um, there's you can just about turn every corner and there's a milk vending machine and and you can see where the capital is in that within that industry. There's there's huge opportunities because people are. If you look at the news now, I mean everyone you can't avoid it. Reusable. Uh, they want to get rid of plastics. They want to know where things are coming from and. The locality of everything at the moment, that everything's there. People are producing the goods, whether it's meat, whether it's milk, whether it's cheese, anything. If folk want to go and get it, they'll go and get it, and they are doing that now. Yeah, and the farm. It started with the farm shop, didn't it? I have a 
farm shop down the road from us, Ardross Farm Shop in, in Fife. Hello, Ardross, if you're listening, um, give you another plug, but they just won our um, farm shop of the year. They won Diversification Farm of the Year for Scotland, and they're just down the road in, in uh, St. Monos, just in, in here in Fife. And I will admit, if they're listening, they probably won't like this, but I'll go down there to buy my sprouts tomorrow, and they'll be three times the price. They'll be the sprouts I'd buy in, in Morrison's or anywhere else. And you go in, and there'll be a queue down the door, and there'll be the most expensive cars you've ever seen in Scotland in their car park. And they've managed to draw that uh, that together and uh, add a premium onto their product. But uh, good luck to them. And it's not just about taking the money off the general public, but it's about asking them to pay the prices that they would pay in in the supermarket and more for for a better product and taking more profit out of it so i think that that's it's something that's growing and growing but the whole diversification thing is is growing and there's different areas of it as it went back to the 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 huts and the people living in it Uh, and and there are guys down in the south and in scotland i think as well they got into the pumpkin market and basically the whole pumpkin market is set up for one day a year um, for two or three weeks before uh, a guy down in Staffordshire, I remember saying he'd, he'd got 70,000 people, 70,000 tickets booked in before, uh, from starting in March, wow. people booked in to come there and Jeez. walk into his pumpkin patch and pick their pumpkins and take them at home. And I don't know what he charged, but I wouldn't imagine they wouldn't be cheap. And, and I do know the guy in, there's a guy in Fife down the road there at, um, that uh, had a pumpkin patch and he ran out of pumpkins and he was sending his, his wife down with a pickup down to Sainsbury's and buying as, every supermarket ran in buying as many pumpkins as they could for a pound and bringing them back to their patch and selling them for a fiver. You, you can't you can't deny that sometimes people are stupid, but uh, if they're getting involved and we're getting the, the, the consumer, i.e. the general public, onto the farms to uh, to take some of our products at a premium price or premium products at a premium price, maybe, um, well, I've, I've spotted a gap in the market. So next year, the last week of October, I'm taking the bed machine down to Holyrood, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bed the best part the best part of Holyrood because it's full of pumpkins. <laughs> and, it, and I think I'll be there'll be queued. Folk will be queued down down the roads wanting them. And they'll be the biggest pumpkins in the world because they're fed with the biggest amount of bullshit you've ever heard as well. <laughs> <laughs> clip that for Christ's sake, make sure and clip it. But I mean, <laughs> let's face it, we've all been asked, or me not particularly because I don't have the farm, but you guys must have been asked, or somebody near you been asked to be on This Farming Life. And I think This Farming Life, fantastic programme. And uh, hello, This Farming Life, if you're watching, listening. Um, that, that they've taken. Uh, small farms, big farms, lots of farms, diversification farms, some of them not really farms, and they've brought them into people's front rooms and, and right into their armchairs, and I think that's been a fantastic show and a fantastic series that they've done that, and I know one or two people, we've all known one or two people, two people who've been in there and the camera's been right in their face, and on days when it's not been good, they're pretty pissed off or told them to piss off, but uh, I think the series has been pretty good, and we're all looking forward to, you guys probably don't know this, or maybe you do all know this, that... Uh, the young beaches are on on the case for uh, for the next uh, yep. um, one coming up there, and those boys will be absolute seriously entertaining. Uh, and and also, I mentioned just now, I, I, I snipped at that Cammy Wilson with the sheep game as well, bringing stuff into people's faces, uh, people's. Um, no, he's been chest. he's been flying the flag, Will Andward, and he's 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 phenomenal. He's got a great way about him. Um, if you consider. Not that long ago, he was working with the police and not really that seriously involved with the farming industry. And what he's done for farming in the last five years is is unbelievable. He's agreed to come on the podcast. I've got him on one of the podcasts shortly. We'll have a chat to him, and I'm sure he'll he'll make a few of us laugh. So, diversification. Anything else anybody's doing locally? Diversification that I can I can 
chuck in here? Anybody had to think about that now? No. I was just thinking, Andy, when, when you were talking about bringing public onto the farm and stuff, it's interesting to hear what you guys think, but these guys, the likes of Cammy and Gareth Wynn Jones, another example, yeah. he puts a lot on social media. Social media is a big part of every industry. If you're going to diversify, you need social media. But is it not quite daunting that you're setting yourself up for a barrage of abuse because the, the keyboard warriors that are like anti-farming use every opportunity they can to try and down what a great industry we've got. And so is it not daunting to get involved in these kind of things? Uh, you know, Cami puts over it puts it over really well and he has an answer for everything, but he must get some flack. You've got an answer to that one, and the answer is basically that you've got to take that flack. You have to if you're going to interact with the public. And this is the difference, I suppose, with maybe other countries, but as, as an industry, we have to stand up to say this is exactly where we stand with our product, and there will be people out there who stand against that product and we have to be the ones who who, uh, who take the flack on that who have the counter answers and have to and it will become a bigger and bigger part of our industry of which i've spoken to a lot of guys on on this podcast where people are now running bull sales online and sheep sales online and they can say what they say and you've got to either delete them but yeah you're right it is it is a problem that we'd have to do if we if we as an industry marketed our product directly every day of the week without the supermarkets who take most of our of our middle profit as we all know then uh, yeah we've got to learn to deal with that so i think it's, it's, yeah. it has its massive advantages but a lot of people don't realize the disadvantages that, that social or, or the, the disparity that social media is causing and, and that might cause us into a civil yeah. war in a few in, in a few years time i'm sorry that's gone off the track now scott i'll let you get back in because no. i'm just sitting and waiting to say something well as farmers and producers in the uk we should have no reservations whatsoever about standing and shouting from the rooftops about what we do in agriculture in the UK, whether it's in whatever sector you're involved in, livestock, arable, whatever. We are punching well above our weight. Uh, Welfare's the best in the world. Um, and we're not, like anybody else, we're not beyond reproach. We're accountable for what we do. But we can celebrate what we do because we're bloody good at it. And uh, everybody buys into the concept that if you look after animals, you look after your farm, it looks after you, and um, we should be very proud of what we can talk about in the UK because, um, yeah, we'll have our critics, but that's ill-informed people who really, in many cases, don't know what they're talking about. Um, and so many people get on the bandwagon and talk about, um, you know, red meat production is, uh, is a massive contributor to climate change. Well, as, as misleading as that documentary was on BBC, remember a couple of years ago where they were flying over the Amazon and looking at feedlots in the USA, <laughs> had yeah. absolutely no bearing whatsoever, even remotely, to, to do with what we do in Scotland and, or the rest of the UK, uh, where we're actually part of the solution to climate change rather than part of the pollution because we, you know, we, we can bring so much to the table in what we do here. Um, and we, you know, we've, we've got a lot to be really, really proud of in, in terms of what we've achieved and what we're doing. The scariest thing, Andy, is the buying habits of the UK. If you went into a supermarket at the end of October, beginning of November, you would find the Halloween shelves would be completely empty. But the red meat, the milk, the, any of the dairy stuff would be completely full. Yeah. Folk are quite happy to go and buy shit and spend a <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's right. You know what I mean, Scott? Yeah, yeah, I do. Change the name of this group to Pumpkin Growers <laughs> United, please. 
They'll go and spend. They will. They'll go and spend. We're currently, we're currently in a, we're in a recession. I don't care what the the government says or what they say. We are in a recession. There's an issue with money, but people are quite happy to spend their money on absolute crap and starve to death. And and that's the that's the sad truth of it. I was a, I was at a gathering recently, and I was talking to somebody who's well connected in the meat sector, and uh, I was quoting that in 2008, following the recession, Q, I was at a QMS seminar that Stuart Ashworth had given, and he was very good. He was talking about um, following the recession that uh, there was a mass exodus towards scratch cooking. So, the, whoever the person, not housewife, but whoever the person who cooks and buys in the house was going back to scratch cutting. They were buying uh, pound of mince, just as Andy says, uh, pound of mince, uh, vegetables, making stew, making everything from scratch because getting more bang for the buck, more protein for the buck. And I thought, I was actually thinking to myself, uh, following, obviously, COVID, because there was a bit of a, there was a little bit of a, um, a leg up, if you like, in the consumption of locally produced food. And then I thought, when when now that we're obviously going back into recession, um, and obviously we're, inflation is uh, through the roof, we're now going to see people go back to scratch cooking. And I said to this person, is that what's happening again? And they said, no, it's absolutely not what's happening. And I said, why? And they said, that was in 2008. We're now in 2022, 14 years further on. That skill base, you've got another generation of people coming through. That skill base is, is uh, diminished massively. And I said, it can have. It's only been 14 years. And they said, no, it has. And people are now used to, as, as, as Goldie says, Going to, the, going to the supermarket, buying a ready-made meal, it's all it's all parting uh, parting meals now in the microwave, and that's what they're eating. And I think in, until they really, until food gets back to, if it ever does, I hope it doesn't. But if food gets back to being forty percent of your of your salary goes on food, uh, and it's currently about sixteen percent of your salary goes on food. People are really not still going to get it. They're going to value having Sky Telly and the top of the range mobile phone way, way, on an iPad, way, way before they do what's in the fridge. Well, I think on that cheery note, that about wraps things up for this evening's uh, Christmas podcast. I've absolutely had a ball there chatting with you guys as a lot of this stuff's going to go on the cutting room floor tomorrow morning when this is edited out. Uh, uh, but uh, thank you to all you listeners out there listening to Top Lines and Tales. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and uh, thank you for staying with me through now 109 episodes and a uh, particular thank you this week goes to my three guests there, to uh, to Andrew Goldie. Thanks. Uh, cheers, Andrew. Uh, uh, keep up with the brand. Yeah, good night uh, everyone. Thanks for having me on, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, to my uh, to my good friend uh, Derek there, uh, hope the snow holds off and uh, you get yourself a great Christmas. And finally to Scott Brown there. Uh, cheers, Scotty. That's been a blast. <laughs> cheers, Scotty. Cheers, Andy. And we'll see you three guys at the Royal Highland Show, if not before, and see everybody else uh, on, back on this podcast again uh, next week and once again a happy Christmas everyone and I'd just like to say a, a massive thank you again and a happy Christmas to our sponsors Harbro. I uh, hope you guys have a good time and uh, we'll catch you all uh, again shortly, thank you again